0: Just to note, listeners, Emily's been having some audio problems. That explains why it sounds a little funny. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. April 20th, 2023, the Was Fox Punished Enough edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm joined, thankfully, he's back in the pink. You can see his skin glowing. His eyes are twinkling. John Dickerson of CBS Primetime, mostly recovered from COVID. John, we were worried about you. Glad to have you back.
1: I had to listen to you all like while I was in my strange, rooting around the house all by myself period. You got me through a, a period, and I'm so glad to be back.
0: Then, uh, she's not back because she never went anywhere. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, Yale University Law School, whose camera, weirdly... So, if John is all shining and glowing, Emily, you're just a blur. You're a blur. We can't see anything about you.
2: Oh, I thought it was just a little dark. It's okay. Oh, well.
0: This week on the GabFest, Dominion settles its defamation lawsuit against Fox News for $787 million and a non-apology. Was that enough punishment? Then... How dangerous is the looming debt ceiling crisis? And do the Republicans actually have a plan to get us through it? Then what should the United States do about Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter detained in Russia, and about other journalists and journalists who are being targeted and Americans who are being imprisoned abroad, this trend of uh, it being dangerous to go live in other places that we are at odds with? Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And uh, we have a GabFest Reads coming up this weekend. We have a bonus episode in your feed. It's me talking to Alexandra Petry, the incredibly funny Washington Post columnist, who has a book that is delightful and charming. It's called Alexandra Petri's U.S. History Important American Documents I Made Up. Includes things like other lists that Joe McCarthy made, John and Abigail Adams' sexting the Gettysburg Address as written by Aaron Sorkin, Uh, Big Women, Louisa May Alcott's unsuccessful first draft of Little Women. It's an incredibly funny book, and Alexandra is charming and interesting. And so check it out in GapFest Reads this weekend in your feed. Dominion Systems and Fox agreed to settle Dominion's $1.6 billion lawsuit against Fox, a lawsuit that alleged that Fox knowingly and with actual malice spread lies about Dominion after the 2020 election, about Dominion's voting uh, technology. In discovery, in the build-up to the trial that was going to start this week, Dominion had successfully proved to the judge that Fox and the contributors it had invited on, like uh, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, were telling lies about Dominion. That Fox was aware, more or less, that these were lies, um, and. The discovery also revealed that Fox continued to put these lies out, knowing that they were lies, because they were pandering to a conservative audience that they were afraid of losing to uh, other right-wing media. So, Dominion had originally sought $1.6 billion in damages, but settled for $787 million. There's no apology. Uh, Fox said in a statement, we acknowledge the court's rulings finding certain claims about Dominion to be false. That is the best we're going to get, Emily Bazelon. Why did Dominion settle now on the verge of trial with so many facts in their favor and, and really only get money out of it?
2: Well, they got a lot of money. They're owned by a private equity firm. So, you know, in the end, that's the capitalism <laughs> prevailed in terms of their settling the other thing is, it takes forever to get a judgment like this. If you go to trial, then you have appeals. It would have taken years to actually receive the money. And this is the sort of safe thing to do. Um, And they are getting an enormous sum of money, right? So I feel like another question I have is how this ever got so close to a trial. Why Fox let all this very damning information out rather than settling months ago, which would have allowed this, you know, embarrassing trail of facts to have remained secret. And I feel like we learned a lot about how Fox operates, how... Cynical they were about giving viewers what they wanted, even though they had lots of evidence that these were false claims. Well, I
1: think they wanted to make sure that they took a stand for freedom of the press and the um, impartial uh, reasoned observation of facts uh, for their audience. <laughs> <laughs> Um come um, like, so like, back I, the
2: beginning, John, I was with you. <laughs> um,
1: you know what what i what what's on my mind at this morning, which doesn't engage with your question, Emily, which we should make sure we don't lose sight of. but um, is I think when i was when I was thinking through why would any why would Fox want to settle? It's not because it's embarrassing because they have totally um thrown aside most, if not, all, of the practices of of traditional journalism. They'd done that for a long time. A trial would have aired all of these instances in which their hosts said bad and mean things about Donald Trump and his people on air. And that that would have been an airing of all of that stuff, which is a direct threat to their to their audience. Um, I mean, at the moment now, the settlement is just a tax they have to pay for the production of their goods. But they can go back into the production of goods that they have been making, which is to say goods that satisfy their audience, not goods that they evaluate based on the reason is what's happening in the world. Because what this what the documents showed us is the extremely powerful pull of the audience and the need for the network on the news side and the opinion side to give the audience what it wants because they were fearful of competition.
0: I think that's a really good point, John, about the having them have to testify in trial. It's very I mean it's been damning. The stuff that came out on Discovery is damning about Fox and about how it behaved and about the rank hypocrisy and the the it, incredible ways that it, it lied to viewers and know, knew that it was lying to viewers. And, you know, in the texts, in the emails that were, were unveiled in Discovery, you have every member of the Fox kingdom essentially saying, this is the game we're playing and we're doing it in order to, you know, hold on to these viewers and we don't really care about the truth. Um, but it's different to have that in a bunch of legal filings than it is to see people say these things to a camera directly in ways that will be memorialized and to have to, to put yourself on record for that. And, and I think there's, they rightly probably perceive that that would be damaging in a way that just the paper, uh, the paper admissions they'd made were not. Do you guys think this case is satisfying for America? Does it, lessen partisanship does it increase the quotient of truth in the world does it uh make journalism safer does it make it fox more likely to be a, a, an honorable player in the media space than it has been in any way i think it
1: says don't get caught i think it says you know be careful what you text um don't leave an email trail uh i but i don't think there's any indication from what was seen behind the scenes and even the way that the, the the Fox statement, which you read, David, engages in exactly the slippery kind of behavior um, that is essentially alleged here um, and the way in which Fox covered the, um, the trial. Now let's not go overboard. Any mainstream news organization that gets uh, nailed like this, they wouldn't, you know, go on and on about it with a special report on their network either. So I don't want to be insane here. Um, But all of the incentives to keep feeding the audience what the audience wants to hear are all still in place uh, at Fox. And so that's going to just continue on Um, better hygiene for internal communication about a dissonance between what's put on the air and what's said privately is about probably (laughs) the best.
0: Exactly. Don't send emails. Don't text.
1: The Economist made a point this week, it said, actually the proof of the, the what the Fox trial shows is that Fox is not feeding their audience, but is in fact whipsawed around by it. And that what these documents show is how captive they are to the audience and how they couldn't stray from giving the audience what it wanted. But I think that is a further place down the timeline than than is actually true in the role that Fox has played in the American story, which is that Fox c- was created and, and conditioned their audience to listen to no other authority other than than fox or voices from a certain segment of america um and in fact the 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 fact that the audience went on and and still believes if you look at polling that the previous election was stolen is a kind of perfection of the fox model which was don't listen to any other uh source and don't listen to any source that is um tainted by, uh, you know, any of the various things that it might be tainted from, being in the mainstream, being a part of the deep state or any of those things. Um, and so, and that's the model that retains and stays, um, the and, and what makes that dangerous, I think, is, is that Fox, among other things, sells an incredibly apocalyptic narrative of America. Um, and that apocalyptic narrative kind of feeds on itself And that relationship with the audience is still there. And that is an ongoing challenge to American life that is, um, you know, still with us.
2: And just to bring in the issue of lies, right? I mean, the only reason that these lies could be redressed in court is that they had a particular... Company or, you know, person that they were going after, right? So we see in this record that Fox is lying over and over again about Dominion. Maybe we'll see in the Smartmatic case, another voting company, a similar pattern with Smartmatic. Usually, however, the lies are diffuse. They're about the election. There is no clear defendant who can sue. And so that same pattern of lying isn't actionable in the American legal system probably shouldn't be right because we want to make a lot of room for false speech. That's the First Amendment. The way that we have the First Amendment in the United States, we think it's really important to have broad speech protections. People can say what any, almost anything they want that is not defamatory in the interest of allowing us to play with ideas, to debate, to make mistakes, to try to get to the truth, um, as sometimes mistakes matter for getting to the truth, or at least are part of that process. And all of that is is laced into Fox's business model. And we've seen evidence of it in this case, but it's absolutely going to continue based on that business model. And this is probably a tax that's well worth paying.
0: Actually, Emily, you mentioned the Smartmatic. Do you want to just quickly mention and and go into some of these other legal problems that Fox has, as well as Dominion still has legal claims out against various entities, including Mike Lindell of... Of my pillow.
2: Yeah, I mean, Fox is still facing it's a $2.7 billion claim from Smartmatic. So that is still going to play out in the courts. There's another claim against Fox um, from a former employee, Abby Grossberg, who is saying that she was basically made to lie or something close to that, um, you know, asked in the course of this lawsuit to give testimony that wasn't true. And so Fox is going to be dealing with these election-related claims about the kind of big lie about Trump uh, questioning the election for a long time. And Dominion is going to keep suing um, OAN and Newsmax. So we haven't by any means seen the last of this.
0: Before we go, Emily or John, why do you think there wasn't in the negotiated settlement some more compelled apology from fox and do you guys think it matters do you guys think it's important i mean money is very very soothing i find that money is extremely soothing Uh, and in the civil system the civil legal system we have money is the reward in general that's how that's how you are uh, if you win a civil case what you generally get is specific performance or you get money you that's the main those are the main ways we we tag a victory in a civil case um but should dominion have pushed harder for fox to be abject should tucker carlson have had to come on wearing a you know wearing black and saying something abject to america
1: i'm interested in emily's take on what the lawyer's, uh, is it fiduciary duty or what the lawyer's duty is? Because it seems like the interest of the company at the end of the day is to get as much money as possible out of Fox, that it's nice to do something for the public good and you want to protect the relation, uh, the, the reputation of the company, but the reputation of the company is protected by the huge payout. Um, the health of the American system is not really your client's business. Um, and so if if it seems what was the case was the case, which is that, um, y- you know, public statement and money were tied, if you can get more money, uh, and and forget about the public statement, then it seems like your duty as a lawyer is probably to get the more money.
2: Yeah, I think that tracks. I'm not sure how much it mattered. I guess it would have been clearer. I guess if you are a Fox viewer and Fox has to apologize, maybe you have to rethink a little bit. But it just seems like people's views of this are so polarized and entrenched. I'm not sure how much of a difference it makes. And if you look at the giant price tag on the settlement, I mean, it's one of the largest settlements in the history of defamation cases. That seems like it should stand for a lot on its own.
0: Slate Plus members, you get a bonus segment on – the gab fest and another slate podcast you get no ads in slate podcasts for your membership and you get whole bonus episodes of certain podcasts our bonus segment today is going to be about diane feinstein the senior senator from california should she be pressured to resign from the senate go to slate.com slash gab plus to become a member this episode of the gab fest is sponsored by sap first the bad news that's SAP Business AI. So here's the first of two segments about hostage taking. Depending on how tax payments come in, it could be as soon as early June that the U.S. may be forced to default on its loan obligations, certainly no later than September if things change. We are at the stage, of course, because we've run up against the statutory debt limit, the amount the country is allowed to borrow, and the House of Representatives under Republican control has said it will not raise the debt ceiling with a clean vote. Historically, there's often been a case where the the House and Senate simply just raise the debt ceiling because they understand they've incurred the obligations in the appropriations process. They have said the government is going to spend this amount of money on this and that's going to cause this much debt. And so we better raise the debt ceiling. Um, but this Republican controlled House is not interested in a clean vote. And so we're in a game of chicken, an incredibly dangerous game of chicken with a full faith of credit and credit of the United States strapped in the back seat. Kevin McCarthy and his House Republicans are trying to do what, John, as far as you can tell? They seem to have like the outlines of a schema, of a drawing, of a sketch, of a plan. There's no they haven't passed a bill <laughs> like they, 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 they don't have a they haven't actually passed a bill saying, here's what we're going to do. They're sort of like, here's some things we would do, even though this deadline is looming literally six, eight weeks away. It touches on so many different things. Um, first of all, to add into
1: your kind of stakes raising um, point. It's not only the full faith and credit of the U.S. G- government that's at risk, and 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 that would come when there is a default. It's that as we get closer, there are possible economic effects that um, will have real costs. I mean, in the last time there was a serious approach to um, this debt limit crisis during the Obama years, the the, the figuring was that it cost U.S. taxpayers about a billion dollars in um, uh, in interest payments during that uh, brinksmanship. So it's not just the faraway possibility of a collapse of the market and all kinds of other things, because the market can collapse and then come right back. If you look at the what the market did when Silicon Valley Bank hiccuped, um, well, it didn't hiccup, it went away, but during the market hiccup as a result of SVB, the market's back, everything's fine, right? So you can imagine that could happen with this. No, there are costs to be incurred along the way. So that's one thing just in terms of the stakes. What's the strategy? Well, one thing is you, you're supposed to begin with the end in mind. Um, And so, A, is that what Kevin McCarthy's doing? Does he know what the end is going to look like? And he's just going through a series of preliminaries to take care of his conference and give people what they need on the way to what's ultimately going to be a capitulation? Because there has to be a capitulation. Because there's always a capitulation in shared powered systems. Um, And so, does he have a strategy towards getting towards an end? Or is he making it up as he goes along? and and I'm not sure what the answer to that is the The big problem for Kevin McCarthy as the House leader is that he's got a very narrow margin and he's got different portions. Um, some people uh, within the Republican ranks talk about it um the the different factions in the Republican uh, conference as the five families, a reference to um the Godfather and that and that they are they are that fractious. McCarthy's got to do a very hard thing, which is get everybody to agree and he's trying to get a vote. By next week on this package that he's got, which is really not a piece of legislation. It's a it's a negotiating tool that says essentially will raise the debt ceiling uh, in response in exchange for these um, cuts. The problem is that as he goes through the preliminaries to try to feed his different constituencies to to keep them together in a unified negotiating position against President Biden, who said he doesn't want to negotiate at all on this question of the debt limit. Is he able to do that? And in so doing, does he possibly raise the expectations of any of those individual groups that will come back to bite him in the end when he has to cut a deal? Will any of those groups, having been told along the way, hey, we can get this, will say, wait a minute, you didn't get it, and I'm not going to vote for your final thing? Republicans who don't vote for him in the end give power to the Democrats, because the only way the House Speaker can get an agreement is with the votes of Democrats. And once that happens, you lose
0: all your leverage. I think one of the premises of the debt ceiling situation is that ultimately Biden and the Democrats who control the Senate will negotiate specifics around the budget and around particular changes in in, in the budget in this debt ceiling crisis because it happened in 2011 when President Obama faced something similar. Uh, he went and negotiated with the Republicans and, and agreed to some policy changes that he probably wouldn't have agreed to in a regular budgeting process as a form of compromise and to get to get out of the the debt ceiling hostage taking but there is this sense that i hear among democrats that no we're we're not going to we're not going to negotiate this ever again that was a mistake we cannot allow this this to be a second uh, bite at the apple for republicans who were not able to get what they wanted in the regular budgeting process they can't be allowed to to uh, punish us in this way, do you think that that willfulness, that that adamancy, can hold if the markets start to tumble if there is a crisis? I
2: mean, that seems like the million dollar question and. I understand the idea that this should not be the way that um, the budget gets decided, that this is a way of sort of, you know, like holding up the whole country and exercising more power than the Republicans actually have in terms of what the voters gave them. But I just don't see how Biden uh, and the Democrats make zero concessions as the political heat starts to increase when we start to see consequences like that. John, what do you think?
1: Well, I think one one just little piece of an additional piece of history is that is that Obama um, in 2013 dug his heels in and said, "No, we're not going to do any of this foolishness," and was successful. And that set in the idea that basically you don't negotiate ever. I think the end game probably looks like something that allows Biden to save face and say, "I didn't negotiate." But that has a kind of side agreement. So the debt debt ceiling gets lifted. Um, In a perfect world, it gets lifted past the next presidential election. Um, Or I guess in a super perfect world, it gets eliminated altogether because this is foolishness. But it gets lifted and then the Republicans get something. But this is a fight at the moment, I think, that Biden thinks he wants to have and he's not crazy about it for a couple of reasons one kevin mccarthy has not yet shown himself to be a master of the american political scene and his own conference his his road to the speakership was bumpy um and and you know it's very hard when you've got such a thin margin and a group of members in your conference who will do you know who will blow it all up because that helps them with their uh, own personal ascent into power in their party, but also what's different here than even during the Obama administration, and certainly different than when Ross Perot ran for president and and uh, got a lot farther than people would have thought on basically a ticket of balancing the budget, is the public interest in balancing the budget has. Highly diminished. Donald Trump, who is the likely nominee and leader of the party, is basically a big spending Republican um, who makes the austerity and budget cutting that used to be the central part of the party makes it a laugh line, makes it a joke. Is running against Ron DeSantis because Ron DeSantis suggested that something needed to be done about Social Security and Medicare that used to be the kind of thing you said in a Republican speech, like "I love Ronald Reagan." I mean, it was just a kind of default position. The pressure in the world and in Republican politics to cut the budget or to balance the budget for its own sake, ain't what it used to be. Now, it is a useful tool to beat up Joe Biden. That's fine. But there are a lot of those tools, you know, running around. And there is a view in the land that the kind of extremism of the Republican Party was what saved Democrats in the 22 election. People didn't like the way Biden was handling the economy. But when you looked at the people who didn't like the way Biden was handling the economy in the election exit polls, they said, sure, but that doesn't mean we want to give Republicans a lot of control of things because of this fear of extremism. So Biden believes, and it's why he uses the word MAGA Republicans every other phrase, he believes that in the fight with Republicans over overspending, uh, he can say, look, the wealthy should pay their fair share and the MAGA Republicans want to do this. That interests me how that plays out and how they see that play out, because of course, that's
0: a precursor for the debate that'll exist in the 24 presidential election. Just a couple of points on this. One is rarely has there been a more opportune time to actually really start to think about cuts to Medicare and Social Security. It's ironic that Republicans who have been willing to talk about it are now no longer willing to talk about it at a time when actually it would probably be good for everyone to talk about it. That was a good pressure they used to put on the system. And now they're not even putting that pressure on the system, which is a bummer. Instead, they're putting pressure on things. Which are just like screw over poor people. So, so this idea of imposing really strict work requirements on people on Medicaid. Matt Iglesias has a great post about this in a Substack today. It's just like make life more difficult for poor people, drive them off Medicaid by making it hard. There are isn't this huge reservoir of people on Medicaid who are all desperately avoiding work. That doesn't exist. That is not true. Instead, what there are people who mostly can't work or having a very hard time like they have all these other obligations that make it really difficult for them to work and and if you make it difficult for them to get medicaid you make it hard for them to get medicaid you drive them off medicaid and then they are poorer sicker like much less likely to get a job much less likely to be contributing members of society their children grow up in worse poverty it's just a it's just a cruelty that has no particular purpose except except quote unquote saving money which it doesn't really save because it it re Distribute some money into other other things later
2: john do you think that mccarthy is going to be able to get his caucus behind a coherent budget i mean they have their own problems right just in passing something that they can say at least the just, republican just to, to note it's a not a budget
0: this. this is not the budget like don't fall into the trick like that's what they Sorry. want to think that this is the budget they did a budget <laughs> they passed a budget we have a budget this is them like l- let's renegotiate the deal very trumpishly
2: Okay, what are we supposed to call this?
0: Well, this is the debt ceiling, uh, the debt
1: ceiling b- bill. Proposal. Um, proposal. Thank you. The, the, that's the better. We should call it the debt ceiling proposal, as Emily says. Um, I think that for the first rounds, McCarthy will be, should be able to get everybody on board, including, by the way, that means deal-making Republican senators. You know, there is this feeling, and there's merit to it, that the Repo- that there are Republicans who Uh, are the adults who will rescue this business before it all goes, you know, south. Um, And that they recognize there needs to be a clean debt ceiling lift. um, And, you know, they're not going to do everything they can to help Joe Biden, but they are the adults who understand that the economy can't be trifled with. But they have not abandoned Kevin McCarthy for the moment. Um, They're letting him do his thing. The question is, how much patience do they have? Um, for it. And one of the difficulties of being a House Republican leader, as John Boehner writes about in his book and talked about, um, has talked about, is sometimes you have to go along with a plan that you know is a very bad plan, so that the members of your conference who want to go ahead with that plan will get burned, calm down, and then you can make the deal that you need to make at the end. That didn't work for Boehner, um, really. In the end, that's what happened with um, trying to kill Obamacare. But it, it, um, it was, there was a lot of crack up and destruction along the way. And so I think McCarthy gets something maybe in the initial phase of this, but not once once things get hotter. There's a lot of challenge with these kinds of things, but the the um the the problem solvers caucus has a framework that looks like it could be something that everybody could could get around to your original question, Emily. If that's what everybody coalesces around, you're going to lose a lot of republicans. And the question is when you lose the republicans, do they take take it out on McCarthy or because doing so allows them to raise their profile with their supporters? Or do they just say, oh, we'll live to fight another day. And that's another thing to watch.
0: I really hope that they get rid of the whole debt ceiling, obviously, because I'm a sane person and it's an incredibly stupid impediment to running the government effectively. And it just does create these moments of crisis for no particular reason. I'm in a way rooting for one of these ultra extraordinary measures to be taken. Either Biden simply declaring that because of the Fourteenth Amendment says that the debt of the United States shall not be questioned. Biden simply saying like this: is, the the debt ceiling is is not germane. It is not a it's not valid law. It's unconstitutional because it contradicts the the fact of the Fourteenth Amendment. That would be one. Or issuing this commemorative platinum coin and issuing it in a denomination that is so enormous that we'd never have to think of it again. You issue it in the dumb denomination of you know fifty quadrillion dollars. There's a commemorative platinum coin worth $50 quadrillion. And then we could have heist movies where someone steals the commemorative quadrillion coin. That would be great too. Or this thing of issuing bonds that have a super high interest rate such that people will pay way, way more than the face value of the bond. So the debt ceiling is sort of it's sort of irrelevant because you're, you're paying off this enormous interest. You can rejigger it so the face value of the bond, which is what they're denominating the debt ceiling against, uh, could be incredibly low. If you have a high enough interest rate on it, and then you're not really adding to the debt ceiling. Um, So I think it would be great if any of these things happened, because going through this over and over again is just stupid. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, who was arrested and charged with espionage in Russia a couple of weeks ago, has been denied bail and will be tried on charges that could result in a decades-long prison sentence in Russia. He was arrested while reporting on the Russian military and is being used by Putin's government as a pawn, as an exemplar, as a bargaining chip, as leverage to scare other reporters in Russia from creating any journalism that questions the Russian narrative about Putin or about the Ukraine war. Probably he's being used for that purpose. Probably this is not a legitimate charge of espionage. I'm certain it's not a legitimate charge of espionage, in fact. And he's also potentially being used... As a high-profile hostage tradable for some kind of Russian asset. He is the first reporter arrested since the end of the Cold War. And I don't even remember, John, maybe you do, that there are reporters being arrested during the Cold War. I don't think I don't think this was a habit of anybody.
1: I can't. I mean, there must be there must have been some reporter, uh, but I can't remember who it was.
0: So, Emily, there is just no reason to take these charges of espionage seriously. Gershkovich is a reporter with a distinguished record. He's aware of you know, what it is to be a reporter. And I suppose there's some remote chance he's a US asset, but you presume that this is something that is trumped up because he's reporting on the Russian military and Russian law makes almost any dissemination of information about the military treason or espionage. But why do you think that Putin was like, I'm going to go after an American journalist now?
2: I mean, I hate to say this, but I keep thinking about the Brittany Griner case and how much attention there was to that, how much it cost the United States in terms of a prison trade. And I just wonder if Putin just sees this as a tool in his arsenal where, you know, it's unlikely that inside of Russia, there's going to be a lot of blowback against him for this. I mean, The Russians are unfortunately accustomed to journalists being murdered as well as imprisoned. And on the world stage, yeah, it's a black mark against him if you're thinking about other democracies, but it doesn't seem like that moves Putin at all. And so the fear that I have here is this is just a very cold-blooded way of trying to extort some price, again, from the United States. And that just makes me fear for Evan Gershkovich in terms of how long he's going to be in prison for.
0: Yeah. Should American media keep reporters in Russia at this point? There are lots of countries which which media organizations deem to be too dangerous to travel in and they don't keep reporters and they don't even allow reporters to go there. There are plenty of places where there are not bureaus, even of the AP or even of the New York Times. I mean, is Russia now such a place?
2: Haven't there been times pretty recently where people didn't put their bylines on their stories from Russia and that was one way of trying to have someone in a bureau in Russia, but not endangering them personally? I mean, I guess my fear is that At this point, given this jailing and these, what appear to be certainly trumped up charges, how do you do anything that isn't just like the most banal kind of reporting, right? I mean, anything to do with the government, anything where you're asking penetrating questions seems like you could be next. And so, I mean, it's just a really hard trade-off for media organizations and also for individual journalists. I mean... Gershkovich was obviously very brave to be doing the work he was doing, and he talked about it. He seemed conscious of the risks he was taking, but this is obviously an incredibly steep price to be paying.
0: How should the U.S. respond to this, John, or to something like the Jason Rezian detention in Iran? Right, or the Paul Whelan five-year detention? Sure. I mean, how, what what is it that the U.S. should do? I mean, they're some people are like, oh, we should take pawns of our own, uh, engage in hostage diplomacy of our own, you know, take Russian nationals who are living in the, in the U.S. and find some reason to charge them with something.
1: And Mike Pence is suggesting kicking Russian diplomats out of the country. I mean, I think there's a ladder of escalation, but I think, you know, it's the same kind of balance the U.S. is trying to hold and maintain in supplying weaponry to Ukraine, is that if you, if you really go and have a big retaliatory act, then... Putin has a very high pain threshold. He's going to seize more and more. And then like, what are you willing to do in the end? And so, you know, the US probably has to do what it's doing, which is the slow accumulation, but in the end, like, basically pay the ransom um, in a way that's not so public that it creates an appetite to do this more. Although, of course, it it will in some sense, but I don't think you, I don't think the U S with all of its stretched commitments is in a position to engage in the same kind of behavior. And that's the point is it's asymmetric.
0: Can you guys think of any part of the world that's moving towards more freedom, more respect for the free flow of information, more respect for journalism? I mean, the Baltic States did that the Baltic States and and some of the Soviet ex Soviet States did that for much of the past 20 years, but anywhere else everywhere i look what i see is that there is a demonization of journalism and journalists the enemy the people language that trump likes so much and it is not coincidence that the autocratic and anti-democratic leaders who are gaining power don't like journalists they don't like the way journalism functions because journalism is a is a potent check on that kind of power and so they demonize them and they've been really effective at it it's they've been really good china and russia have effectively choked off independent media and it turns out that social media and the internet are not actually an effective substitute in any sense for the work of journalism like because governments have gained effective control of those too or if they filled the internet with so much lie so many lies so much chaff so much kind of bogus information that people can't figure out what is true even if they wanted to and so it I feel like we're in an information war, and the the people who want to crush journalism and crush the kind of valuable accountability work that journalism does are winning, and they're winning big time. And this is just another skirmish in it. Emily, why am I wrong?
2: No, I mean, I'm thinking about Mexico as you're talking, because AMLO, the president of Mexico, he totally does this. And Mexico is the place where the most journalists have been killed recently. Which I I found that really surprising and alarming. I mean, obviously, it's because I don't know enough about Mexican politics, but Mexico is our neighbor. It's not some, you know, behind the Iron Curtain country. And yet, this tactic, you know, which other Latin American figures like Bolsonaro in Brazil have also adopted, I, I fear that you're right, that there's a way in which journalists right now don't have a whole lot of defenders, and we've kind of lost track of. role that we need them to play, because it's so easy to just, you know, we journalists make lots of mistakes, there are lots of ways in which the media, in many countries, including ours, you know, is so imperfect and flawed. But if that's all you see, then I think that you do lose sight of what happens in a society where you don't have trusted sources of information. I mean, that is how Putin remains in power, because nobody really knows what's true in Russia or what source to trust.
1: And you also have a weakened, generally the environment is weakened for independent voices because of social media and all the other ways. So all of the things that threaten journalism as a business help the autocrats, um, you know, so that, that that contributes as well. Although the one bright spot is that, and I'm looking just at the Freedom House report on the, uh, you know, which, which every year there's a report that Freedom House does, which marks the, the, improvement of of democracies in the world and the most recent report which came out recently showed that there was a decline for the 17th consecutive year in global freedom which you know obviously freedom of the press is a part of those so david you're right although it notes that while there has been declines obviously in in Russia and Peru and Brazil that Colombia actually is going the other way. And and the gap between countries that are getting worse and getting better was actually the narrowest it had been in 17 years. So it's it, there is a tiny bit of light. Now, that's not just about fe- freedom of the press, but it is about autocracies versus democracies.
0: Before we leave this, I just want to go back to Russia for a second, because one of the things that I think is is so depressing about our relationship with Russia these days is that I think we all hope for... Russia to be different in a post-Putin era. But for Russia to be different in a post-Putin era, Russia has to have a civil society. It has to have institutions, nonprofit organizations, humanitarian organizations, professional associations, media organizations that reach across the society, that connect different people geographically, connect different people across networks that otherwise don't exist. And Putin, in the way that a lot of authoritarians and totalitarians can, has done a tremendous job destroying civil society in Russia. And one of the things that we are unable to do in that during the Cold War, we were very effective at creating underground civil society within the Soviet Union. Like there were these dissident networks that we helped fuel. There were ways of communication that we helped abet. And it's just very hard for us to do it because it is so dangerous for anybody in Russia to be associated with the West right now. And anybody who kind of does any work that's aligned with any kind of Western organization has put themselves at at mortal peril. And it's really depressing to think that not only is Putin very successfully kind of thuggishly ruling this country in the moment, but he's making the conditions of of changing it harder and harder by having so successfully eliminated civil society. And that depresses me.
1: One thing I would just add, as I talked to Jeremy um, Burke this week, who is a um, friend um, of Evans. And I've now talked to the family members, um, also Paul Whelan's family. And, you know, there, there is this network now of people whose family members are being held in other countries and a kind of, you know, they share tips right away about how to keep their loved ones in the light. Because of course, uh, not only that's what puts pressure on the Russians to the extent that global pressure can be put on them. Also, it it does filter through to Evan. I mean, he was able at least to write a letter to his mother and make a joke about how her cooking and prepared him for um, eating in the Russian prison. But that that kind of trying to keep that, you know, flame alive in the galing wind of of everybody's attention being so split and bifurcated, and because keeping you know Evan in everybody's face helps his cause, um, and you really feel that acutely when you talk to them. And the, I would also recommend a Wall Street Journal piece about the prison that Erszkovic is in uh, the, I don't know how you pronounce it, but um, uh prison, a notorious prison in Moscow, and the description in the journal piece, which is quite extensive, of how they psychologically handle prisoners, essentially isolating them, but not in a single cell all the time, I you walk through the prison, but you never see another prisoner, and it's quite a chilling piece of what Evan is going through.
0: Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are having a reviving drink, Emily Bazelon, what will you be chattering about?
3: Like a lot
2: of people, I'm sure I'm so distressed this week by these shootings um, in Missouri and then in New York of people who are doing entirely innocent things.
0: Also Texas.
2: Also Texas.
0: Two cheerleaders got into a car that wasn't the car that was picking them up. And, the person in the car shot them.
2: Yeah, it just, this is so confounding, right? You have this teenager, Ralph Yarl, go up to the wrong house. He didn't go inside. Then you have a young woman in New York, Kalen Gillis, who drove into the wrong driveway and people are taking out their guns and shooting in these kinds of situations. It just seems like there is a pattern right now where the notion that there's some kind of Serious danger from people you don't know has really gotten into a lot of people's heads, and it seems connected to all this idea of the Stand Your Ground laws or what used to be called the Castle Doctrine, where you don't have to retreat. You have some greater right if you feel threatened. But what seems to have gotten just sort of to- lost is that you have to have a reasonable fear. And these do not seem like situations that could have produced any kind of reasonable fear. And it's as if America, or at least some Americans, are turning the country into this much darker, scarier place than it really is, which is obviously creates these individual tragedies. But also, it just seems like such a bad move for to make the country seem like this incredibly scary place. It's as if you've moved into some zombie apocalypse universe. We don't actually live in that universe. We are lucky in the United States to live in a place where we can basically assume that unless you see someone threatening you, they are not doing so. And Anyway, it's just the the idea that people are getting hurt and killed for these um, completely unfathomable reasons is so distressing.
0: John, what is your chatter?
1: My chatter comes from the the New York Times, which had uh, published a, a picture of the map of mars which i thought was you know sort of interesting it didn't overwhelm me but as i was reading about it i learned about um percival lowell who created his own map of mars he percival lowell there's an um an observatory in arizona that bears his name and in 1894 he spent 15 years or so, sketching what he thought was the, he did his own hand-drawn map of Mars. But the more interesting thing is that he also did this with Venus. But what was discovered in, I think, the 70s was essentially <laughs> that um, a bunch of eye doctors looked at what he had drawn, and they realized that that the what, what he'd done to change his Telescope, which was essentially narrow the aperture of the telescope in order to see Venus. That he, in fact, had, what he had done is take a reading of his own eyeball. So the, the very carefully detailed map of no. Venus that he drew was actually oh a map God. of his own eyeball. And it seems to me that I'm I I, I don't I'm not going to allow anybody to use this as an analogy for myopia, um, because it seems to me to be the perfect metaphor for when you narrow your focus, you end up only seeing yourself.
0: <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> That's a great chatter. Uh, my chatter is about something I heard this morning on my company's podcast, CityCast DC. So I live in DC, and I've been obsessed with rats recently. And CityCast DC on Thursday morning has an episode about the rats of DC. And it includes this amazing interview at the end you got to listen to the end with a guy whose name now escapes me but he's been hired by restaurants and in adams morgan to bring his dog to uh walk the alleys of adams morgan and a bustling neighborhood of dc with lots of restaurants and set his dog loose on the rats of adams morgan and apparently there are these rat killing dogs which are incredibly great at killing rats and better than Poison, and he makes the argument that you, you know, people say, "Oh, it's so in- inhumane," but his view is like, you know, we're poisoning these rats, and the poison is like eating them from the inside for five days. Whereas my terrier grabs a rat and it shakes it to death in ten seconds. And so I was just so, you know, rats are disgusting, cities are disgusting because of rats. Rats are gross. But if you want to, if you want to hear about a kind of interesting encounter between rats and dogs and humans, listen to the CityCast DC episode about it listeners you have also sent us your chatters please keep them coming please email them to us at gabfest at slate.com something that you are interested in you're talking about at your cocktail parties if you have cocktail parties and our chatter this week comes from nancy hall
3: hello Gabfesters. my name is nancy hall and i'm recording this in chicago illinois and my chatter for this week is a series of articles published in the chicago tribune that describe the serious delays in the Cook County criminal court system and their handling of murder cases in particular. Apparently, Cook County takes longer to adjudicate these murder cases than any other comparable city, including New York and Los Angeles. These delays started before the pandemic and continue to worsen. Advocates aim for murder cases to take no more than a year to complete Cook County's goal is a little more than two years, but now it's taking more than four years to complete most murder cases, and in some cases, it's taking up to 10 years. As you can imagine, the consequences of this are far-reaching, including the cost to the taxpayers and the lack of justice offered to defendants and victims' families. It really becomes a story of prolonged despair, The details outlined in these articles are depressing, but maybe not shocking. The overall takeaway is the disregard for the rights of defendants and victims' families, most of whom are black. In addition to this being important content, it's great to see this type of local journalism happening in my city.
0: That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is VP of Audio for Slate. Please send us your chatter by emailing us at gabfest at slate.com or tweet your chatter to us at SlateGabFest. And you can follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. For Emily Bazelon and newly revived, newly healthy, Still cogent, John Dickerson. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, Slate Plus. How are you, Diane Feinstein? Who's the senior senator by age in the U.S. Senate? The California senator, the Democrat. She's 89 years old. Has been out of pocket and not in Washington for quite a while. She has been hospitalized with shingles. She's now recovering at home in California, and. She asked to be temporarily replaced on the Judiciary Committee so that uh, the business of the Judiciary Committee could continue. And so the Democrats would continue to have a majority on the committee while she is, while she is not able to be in Washington and thus could uh, push things through the Judiciary Committee that they can't if they are uh, f- split 50-50 with Republicans. The Senate Judiciary Committee is 19 members. So she's the 10th vote for Democrats. And then there are nine Republicans. So there was a move to to replace her and Republicans refused to allow Democrats to replace her. They needed unanimous consent. They needed a unanimous, all the senators to go along with this. And Republicans were like, nah, 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 you can come back to work when you're ready. Um, but for now, um, we're just going to proceed with, a, with an evenly split judiciary committee, which means you're Judicial nominees will have a harder time, President Biden. So, Emily, should Dianne Feinstein be compelled to resign so that Democrats can replace her in the Senate and get that seat back uh, with a senator who can serve immediately?
2: She should resign of her own free will. I mean, she should, I think, acknowledge that, um, you know, there are now this just abundance of stories that she's having memory problems She's really old and she's had an amazing life of public service. And this is a kind of terrible ending to it, both for just the, you know, functioning of the government and for uh, her own legacy she has shingles. She's had it since February. If it was clear she was going to recover and she was going to be you know, entirely compass when she came back, that would be one thing. But that's not the case. And this just seems like a really big price for her party to be playing um, for what just seems That was like just a
0: snippet from our Slate Plus of- conversation. And- if you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.